Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 8, and I'm glad you could join us as we continue this study through the book of Genesis and in fact through God's Word together. Seeking to truly be able to grasp hold of the meaning and substance of Scripture, that it may speak to our hearts and challenge us how we live, how we think about things, how we see the world, so that our lives would be well, more in line with what God created us to be and calls us to be as his followers. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, I encourage you back up to chapter one. We've laid some groundwork and some explanation that will help you understand where we are and how we got there here as we look at chapter eight. So if you just want to dive in here, I'm not going to stop you from doing that either, but you'll get more out of it backing up. Now, again, thank you for joining us. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, and then we will dig into this chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. We thank you for your word become flesh, that you came and dwelt among us, that you provided a way of salvation for us, a way of forgiveness and, and right standing with you. And Father, we thank you for your word, this text that you have that you have inspired and brought together over a millennia and a half and have, have have brought from so many people in so many places and yet it reveals to us you your interactions with us as your creation lord we thank you for the bible we thank you for the book of genesis and we thank you for this opportunity to study it together it is in jesus name that we pray amen Well, now as we continue with our study of Genesis, we're in the midst, in fact, we're right in the middle of the flood account. Um, the flooding has already taken place back in chapter 7. Now we're in chapter 8, which concludes the account of the flood itself. And as we move into chapter 9, then we we see some more about God's relationship with humanity and a, a covenant that is established there, the Noadic covenant. But we'll get to that next week. Uh, this week, we are just really rounding out the event of the flood, this cataclysmic global flood that that wipes out creation, or as we saw in some of the language from uh, chapter seven's study, undoes, as, as it mentions some key phrases along the way in chapter seven, they're they're an undoing of some of the specific terms that were used back in the Genesis 1 creation account. Uh, so you get the idea that God's intent here is to literally undo and then, as we're going to see in some of today's wording, redo creation. And uh, there's some interesting quirks here. So let's let's dig into this text. It's not a long passage. It's 22 verses, and I think it'll go pretty quickly for us. But uh, there's some things we need to pick up from us. This isn't just the, oh, here's the story of their last period of time in the boat after it quit raining. Uh, there's far more to it than that. So let's look. Chapter 8 of Genesis, starting in verse 1. And again, I am using the New Living Translation. It's it's a pretty good translation. Gives us a good modern reading on it. Uh, it is well translated, a good scholarly work. It's a thought-for-thought thought translation. Um, and it's not one I'm as used to, so I have to think about it more as I'm studying it. Uh, so some people say, what's, what's the best translation? And my preacher answer to that is the one you will read. Um, a lot of people have 
all sorts of Bibles that they never open. Well, it doesn't matter what translation it is if you never open it and never read it. Second thing I would say is one that you can understand. If you don't understand Shakespearean English, then King James probably isn't the best option for you. Now, are there some bad translations out there? Mm. Uh, short answer, yes. Uh, and if I have to give my strictly my opinion on it, but uh, the the Living Bible, not the New Living, that's what I'm using, but the Living Bible that came out what, back in the 70s isn't actually a translation. It's, it's more of an interpretive. I'm not real nuts about the message for the same reason. Uh, Eugene Peterson's translation, if you will, of scripture. Uh, they're not actually translations. And I'm more into, let's, let's hold to what the inspired text actually was um, and not just freely opinionate on what we think it should mean. Now, I'm painting with a broad brush there. If I've just offended you because you love those two versions of Scripture, then I'm sorry. That really wasn't my intent. But from a scholarly standpoint, they're just not very good. So pick a scholarly translation. New American Standard's good. Um, ESV, RSV, uh, what is it, the Christian Holman Standard Version or Christian Standard Version, I think is what it's called now. Um, the New Living, uh, the King James, I like the New King James. I've got a couple copies of that and have used one of them for years. There are some good ones out there. Find one you will use and use it. Um, it's far more important than us killing each other over what initials are printed on our Bible. Most of my Bibles have, you know, something along the lines of SLJ printed on them, but those are my initials. So, you know, big whoop. What Bible will you read and what Bible is, is a grounded Bible? All right, let's get to the text. Chapter eight. We'll start in verse 1. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat. Now, let me point out the obvious here. God didn't forget Noah. Um, that remembered, God remembered there is more of a covenant reference. God remembered the promise. We'll see that phrase echoed throughout much of the Old Testament where God does something and God remembered his promise with Abraham. God remembered his covenant with, um, this is a, a covenant reference that God remembered. He adhered to, he, um, he did not disregard the covenant that he had made with Noah and the animals that them trusting in him and following his command into this boat, he would see them through and provide for them. Um, that's the language. That's what's going on here. It's not, oh, God forgot about them. And then like, oh, hey, what's that blip over there on, you know, near Ararat? Oh, wait, hey, that, oh, yeah, I remember Noah now. Uh, no. Okay, just no. This is, this is covenant. This is saying God was true to his word with the covenant he made. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat. He sent a wind to blow across the earth. 
and the floodwaters began to recede. Interesting there. Hebrew word for wind is the same as the word for spirit. It's the pneuma. No, that's Greek. Sorry. The ruah, uh, the breath. It's, it's, it's first chapter of Genesis creation language that we're seeing referenced here. Uh, and we're going to see several points through this chapter where God is in essence, as he was undoing creation in chapter seven, he is redoing creation. Does it mean the second creation? Not exactly, but it's a restoration, a, a having undone it, he is now putting it back together. So he sent a wind to blow across the earth and the floodwaters began to recede. The underground waters stopped flowing and the torrential rains from the sky were stopped. You know, the waters of the deep and the waters from above. They stopped. Well, again, Genesis 1, the waters were separated. It goes on. So the floodwaters, verse 3, so the floodwaters gradually receded from the earth. After 150 days, exactly five months from the time the flood began, the boat came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, we don't know exactly where the mountains of Ararat are. And you may be going, no, no, no. I have read and I've always been taught it's a mount Ararat is a mountain in Turkey. And yes, Ararat is a mountain in Turkey today, even during the biblical times. But there is a range of mountains, the Ararat or Uratu mountains, um, Turkey, what is it? Turkey, Armenia, and, um, Oh, wow. It escapes me. Iran. Yeah. Turkey, Armenia, and Iran over in that area, there are the, what we understand are the Ararat mountains. This doesn't say it landed on Mount Ararat. It said it landed, it came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, somewhere in that chain of mountains. If what we have named that chain of mountains is in fact the chain of mountains that they were referring to in this text um, may very well have been. The dating of those names goes back far enough that we could think, you know, the Israelites' time of Moses, it would have been the name they would have known it by. Does that mean we can go there and find the ark today? Mm. You know, I, I don't know if a boat made out of wood even on a mountaintop, is still going to be around. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Uh, but I'm sure there are guys in souvenir shops all over the world that will sell you a fragment of the Ark of the Covenant, or not Ark of the Covenant, of, the, uh, uh, the, of Noah's Ark. Um, and much like, uh, much like the old story goes about buying splinters of the cross, there are enough splinters of the cross out there that you could build an entire forest. It's not... Um, <laughs> It's not the point even. You see, if we get hung up on where the where Noah's Ark might be and we get hung up on finding it, oh, if we could just find a piece of it, if we could just, what are we placing our faith in? 
I'm not saying there's not fact to back up our faith. I'm not saying that at all. I believe these are factual accounts. But be careful about placing your faith only in the things that you can go out and find. Because you'll find out that pretty quickly you begin to worship the thing and not the one who your faith ought to be in. But the point of this, it was exactly five months from the time the flood began. The boat came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Two and a half months later, so now we're seven months in, as the waters continued to go down, the mountain peaks became visible. So it ran aground, and now, what, two and a half months later, the water has receded enough that they can start to see mountain peaks. After another 40 days, Noah opened the window that he had made in the boat, and he released a raven. Now, ravens from the crow family, it's large, it's a carrion eater, and he released it, and it flew off, and it didn't come back. You may go, what's that have to do with anything? It found something to eat. If it hadn't found anything to eat, it would have come back. But being a carrion eater, you know, who knows what it found to eat. But he released the raven. The bird flew back and forth until the floodwaters on the earth had dried up. He also released a dove to see if the water had receded and it could find dry ground. Now, doves will eat vegetation, so it's important there that they'd receded far enough that there was vegetation. But the dove could find no place to land because the water still covered the ground. But it returned to the boat, and Noah held out his hand and drew the dove back inside. Verse 10. After waiting another seven days, Noah released the dove again. This time, the dove returned to him in the evening with a fresh olive leaf in its beak. Now, what does that mean? It found fresh vegetation. This is a significant thing. This is a huge step because it's, you know, it's, it's a huge step that they were run aground. It's another huge step that the waters receded and they could see land, but just seeing land doesn't make things sustainable. But now we have a carrion eater that is able to survive. We have a dove that feeds on vegetation and it's able to survive. We're seeing that more and more of the earth is becoming sustainable, if you will. So this time the dove returned to him in the evening with a fresh olive leaf in its beak. Then Noah knew that the floodwaters were almost gone. He waited another seven days, then released the dove again. This time, it did not come back. Why? Because this time it found plenty to eat. It didn't need to come back. So that, that's a turning point for them. That's a big signal for them. And then we get to verse 13. Noah was now 601 years old. On the first day of the new year, ten and a half months after the flood began, the floodwaters had almost dried up from the earth. Noah lifted back the covering of the boat and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. Two more months went by, and at last the earth was dry.
So this whole time, it is not just the flood, but oh, 40 days, 40 nights, and then it's all over. No, 40 days, 40 nights, and the rest of the year that it took for the waters to recede, for the land to dry out. Um, this was a tremendous event. This isn't just it, you know, it rained a lot in one area where some people used to live and they got really wet and some of them drowned. No. Um, this is a global cataclysmic flood event and it doesn't make sense to me. The mechanics of it. I don't understand it. I know there are those that explain it. I've heard scientific sounding. That's, that's an official phrase, scientific sounding. Uh, people explain how it couldn't have happened. I've heard scientific sounding people explain how it could have happened or whatever. The truth is, it's a matter of faith. Do you believe that what God has said in his word is true and real or not? And on this, I, I do. In fact, on, on his word, I believe it's true and real. Uh, sometimes I think there's issues with our understanding of it, but I mean, this is the, the floods, the flood. It happened, as I shared last week, every major world culture has a flood story, a global flood story. Um, to me, that makes great sense because we would all be descended from the family that came through the flood on the ark. We should all have that common story. And it goes back to Noah. And this was a huge thing. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I sit here being a little over half a century old. And I find that I'm a little resistant to learning new things. I know. Scary thought. But there are certain things that like, you know, I always, I like the way I used to do that. I don't want to learn how to do it different. But it becomes necessary, right? You've got to face reality and things change and things have to be dealt with differently. So, you know, you, you have to learn, you have to continue growing, you have to continue changing. Noah was 600 years old. Now you may think, well, wow, I had a bad year back in 2020 not compared to Noah and his 600th year. He got to spend it cramped up in a boat with a bunch of animals watching the world die. And then there was a whole lot of sitting around waiting for the dirt to dry. Wow. Well, that's where he is at the end of 14. Two more months went by and at last the earth was dry. Now, as we get to 15, we see Noah begin to worship and we see God's response to that worship. In verse 15, it says, then Noah, or then God said to Noah, let me get that right. Then God said to Noah, and then 16, leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, Release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, and the small animals that scurry along the ground so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. Wait, haven't we heard that fruitful multiply thing before? Yeah. 
again, strong echoes of chapter one. Um, even the, the, at last the earth was dry. At last there was dry land from the end of verse 14. Uh, all echo back to the separation of the water and the land, to the, to the creation of the animals, to the, to the be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth command. Um, this is all kind of a reestablishing. It's not, it's not a whole new creation, but it's a reset of creation uh, using that unmaking and then remaking uh, phrasing from chapter seven into chapter eight. And here we see that restoration, that reestablishment. Because of the evil and violence of humanity, God had wiped out most of everything, had unmade most of creation. And through his judgment in the flood, he had not just rendered judgment, but he had unmade and remade to establish what we have here. To establish this moment of Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives, all the animals, the birds, the livestock, the small animals that scurry along the ground. Again, order of creation there, the birds, then the, the animals and the little animals that scurry on the ground. And then the command, so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. Well, actually, that's not a command. That is a statement of what they would do, which was a carrying out of the command they were given back at creation. So now we've gone back. And that is a huge thing. God did not just judge humanity. He restored humanity to an earlier point. Uh, if you if you deal with computers much, I, I can remember when Windows um, operating system added to their machines restore points. I these were a game changer. I've been using computers since oh wow, since one of the first home computers came out but that's a whole nother story. But I can remember a time with Windows machines when you got the blue screen of death. And if you don't know what that is, Google it. Um, when you got the blue screen of death, you were pulling out your DOS floppy disks to reinstall the DOS operating system so that you could then install, you know, like Windows 3.1 and get your machine up and running again after you fix the problem. Well, now, or years after that, I can't remember whether it was in the Windows 2000 or one of the later ones, uh, they added this recovery feature where you had restore points and you could go back and reset to that earlier restore point. So if everything went sideways and your computer went squirrely because you added some piece of hardware or some piece of software, it was okay. Because you could could kick out of that and choose one of the restore points and it would reset your computer back to what it used to be at that point in time. Now, it's probably a dumb analogy, but still, that's essentially what God did with creation. It went a direction that it shouldn't have. It was a direction God allowed it to go, but still, it was a direction that required judgment. 
and brought judgment on it. Now it has been restored to that earlier point. And that is God's grace and his mercy. It wasn't wiped out, but it was restored to an earlier point. In verse 18, it says, So Noah, his wife, and his sons, and their wives left the boat. And all the large and small animals and birds came out of the boat, pair by pair. Uh, a, basically a reverse of what happened when they loaded the boat. They're unloading the boat. So again, back to what was. Now, the last part of this chapter picks up in verse 20. And it is an act of worship. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and the birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. Even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood, I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. And that's how the chapter ends. But I want to go back and look at those last couple of verses, three verses, starting in 20. Noah builds this off this altar to worship God. Noah was a man who walked with God prior to the flood. That's why God chose him and his family to carry on humanity through and to see through this flood. So Noah built an altar and he worshiped the Lord and he made sacrifice of the animals, the clean animals, the animals that God had showed him. We talked about this when they loaded the ark that were clean. And uh, th this isn't quite as strong a term for clean as we see in the Levitical law, but it carries the same kind of ritualistic and, and, and whatnot. And God would have revealed this to Noah to know which animals. So uh, no tremendous mystery there. So he makes this offering in worship to God. And verse 21, And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. That's a significant phrase. You may go, well, that is so weird. I mean, you're burning these animals and sacrifice to God, and God's pleased with the aroma. Uh, another translation refers to it as it was a sweet smell to God. Um... This is a, a anthropomorphic description of God, uh, you know, it, to help us understand what's going on and understand throughout the Old Testament, these references to God being pleased with the aroma of a sacrifice. It's it, not like we're pleased with the smell of good barbecue, okay? He's pleased with the significance of the obedience and the attitude of the heart that leads to action of those that are worshiping him. And we see that clarified by some of the Old Testament prophets, especially some of the minor prophets, uh, harp on that idea that, you know, God isn't in it for sacrifice. He doesn't demand from us sacrifices. He demands from us obedience. 
So Noah built this altar. He offered this sacrifice and the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice, was pleased with the obedience and the worship of Noah. And he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. So God would not add greater curse for sin. I, that was back when Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden. The ground was cursed. And here he has wiped out the human race with the exception of Noah and his downline and said, okay, I'm not doing that again. It's not the way it's going to happen. I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. Even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. Uh, that was the accusation against them pre-flood is God said everything they think or imagine is evil. And here he's going, hey, I will not curse the ground because of them. And though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood, I will never again destroy all living things. You see, God knows our hearts and he knows that we do not deserve to be in his presence. It is by his grace. It is a gift of God and his mercy and grace given to us. It is in him paying the price for our sins, for us on the cross at Calvary. That we are made right with him. It's not because we're so great. It's not because we're so good. We're not good. We're not. Our world likes to tell us, oh no, people are inherently good and people will do good things given the choice. No, people will do great evil given the opportunity. Hmm. Everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains... There will be planting and harvesting, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. These regimented cycles of the earth. He says, hey, as long as the earth remains, these things are going to happen. There is an order to life on earth. The flood was a setting aside of that order. An undoing and then a reestablishing of the created order. And now God says that created order is going to carry forward as long as the earth remains. Now there's going to come a day when the old earth passes away and the Lord brings in the new earth. You can jump to the book at the other end of the Bible, Revelation, and I've got a whole series of podcasts on that. Check it out. But, um, until then, there will be planting and harvest, there will be cold and heat, there will be summer and winter, and there will be day and night. And that is where this chapter ends. But in it, we still see God's justice. We still see God's provision. 
we still see that God didn't forget Noah and his family. He didn't forget his promise to see them through. He didn't forget his creation. But instead, he did something very difficult and very necessary to provide for humanity and for creation to move on with the promise the promise of a savior the promise of being made right with him the promise that this world doesn't have to be twisted twisted broken and evil all the time but that god is at work in it and he is calling us to himself Instead of being like everyone else before the flood, we can be like Noah and walk with the Lord. And even after the flood, after that really horrible 600th year of his life, Noah could build an altar, he could make sacrifice, and he could worship God. Because he walked with him. And I would say the challenge from this text to us is no matter what God leads us through, he is calling us to walk with him. So will you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. We thank you again for your word that has been preserved for us, that we can study it and talk about it, and prayerfully consider it together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to do this, this this podcast, this study of your word in this format. Lord, I thank you for that, that you have brought us to the point where this is possible without regard for for location or time, that, that we can do these things. May we do them for your glory for your honor. May we hear your voice speaking to us through your word. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.